baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and this week we've got a lot to talk about for both the Braves and for Major League Baseball. Of course, the trade deadline has come and gone. Atlanta made a splash as Alex Antopoulos went out and got not one, not two, but three veteran relievers to add to the Braves' bullpen. We'll talk a lot about that in this episode as we get to know those guys. We'll hear from each one of them. And we'll talk about the big picture as far as the trade deadline was concerned. There was a three-team trade, which is always fun. There was a blockbuster that came right down to that 4 p.m. deadline on Wednesday as Zach Grinke was traded to the Houston Astros. And then, of course, there was a laundry list of names that we heard about for the last couple of months, all rumored to be finding new teams as contenders were going to go out. And it was going to be a crazy trade deadline because you only get one shot at making these trades. Well, some of those names ended up going nowhere. So we'll talk a lot about that and some surprise trades from teams that aren't necessarily in contention that might have changed the scope of the entire deadline itself. So we'll dive into that, and I've got my buddy Matt Snyder from CBS Sports set to join us a little bit later in the show. But as always, we like to start with our Atlanta Braves news, which we'll get to momentarily. But if you're new to the show, I invite you to subscribe to From the Diamond on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you'd be so kind as to leave a rating and a review, I always appreciate those. And you can find each and every episode of the show at FromTheDiamond.com. You can also connect on social media on Twitter. You can find the show at FromTheDiamond underscore. You can find me on Twitter at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And on Instagram, you can also find the show at FromTheDiamond, no underscore. And I'm at Grant McCauley there as well. If you want to connect, send your questions, comments, likes, ratings, reviews, and shares, and retweets, and all of the things that make social media fun. I appreciate all of it and enjoy talking baseball with you both here on the podcast and, of course, across the wonders of social media. And with all of that plugging out of the way, let's look back at the week that was for the Atlanta Braves. When last we spoke, they were embarking on a road trip that was going to be pretty important for the club. They took two out of three from the Philadelphia Phillies before rolling into Washington to face the second-place Nationals and doing the exact same thing. The Braves took two out of three there, so four and two on that six-game road trip against the two teams that were chasing the Braves in the standings, and that all led up to the trade deadline itself. As it was 4 p.m. on Wednesday, the Braves were playing the finale in Washington, on Wednesday afternoon at noon. So we really didn't know what was going to be happening until Tuesday night when the Braves made the first of their three moves as right-hander Chris Martin of the Texas Rangers was acquired. He was a guy that you figured was going to be able to factor in somewhere in that setup role. Perhaps he was going to end up being the closer if the Braves couldn't do anything else. But either way, the six foot eight righty, a veteran, and a guy that's having a great season for the Texas Rangers, he was brought over as move number one for Alex Anthopoulos and company. If you're unfamiliar with Chris Martin, let me just give you the numbers quickly, and then we'll get into some of his backstory. He was sitting on a 3.08 ERA in 38 appearances for the Rangers, just 38 innings, only four walks against 43 strikeouts for him, so less than a walk per nine innings. That's something that Braves fans and, of course, the Braves themselves 
would be very happy to see someone who's not issuing free passes in the middle to latter portion of the game. It's something we've been watching all season long, and this is the kind of reliever who comes in, pumps strikes, and gets out. So a very nice piece for the Braves to add before they even made the two deals right before the deadline on Wednesday. Martin has a fascinating backstory, which it's just really interesting to see how different players reach the big leagues. He was drafted out of high school way back in 2004 by the Tigers. He didn't sign, then was drafted by the Rockies out of junior college a year later. But it wasn't until 2014 when Martin would finally find his way to the big leagues with the Rockies. He also pitched briefly for the Yankees. And then perhaps the most important stop of his entire trek, he would go over to Japan and became a very, very good reliever there. Really got dialed in control-wise. That's really, I think, been his calling card coming back and signing a two-year deal with the Rangers in 2018 and 2019. He made 85 appearances for Texas. He walked nine batters. That's just an eye-popping statistic when you think about how many walks we see in the game, not just the Braves bullpen, but all across baseball. This is a guy who is very precise on the mound and has traveled a long road to perfect his style and has been very effective, especially in 2019 for the Rangers and now coming over to the Braves hoping to bring some of that there as well. Now, Martin was the first guy to come over, and he cost a former first-round pick. And Colby Allard, the left-hander the Braves took with their top selection in 2015, he was dealt over to the Rangers. Briefly, if you look at Colby Allard's career, he's a guy that, though just 21 years old, like Mike Soroka, has been aggressively promoted through the minor leagues, really excelled all the way through AA, has also been pretty effective in AAA, especially last year, but seemed to be lost in a numbers game with the logjam of starting pitching prospects the Braves have. So if you're going to make a trade, take that depth and turn it into something useful. And even though you'll only have Martin for a couple of months, this is the kind of deal that you want to make, especially when you have not only depth, but talented depth in the system so you can afford that kind of price tag if you're going to go out and make a trade. So let's hear from the new Braves right-hander Chris Martin, who made his debut on Friday with a scoreless inning at SunTrust Park against the Cincinnati Reds. He's excited to be joining a first-place team in the midst of a pennant race, and appreciates the opportunity at this point in his career. You know, what I've gone through is just a humbling experience. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful to, to be playing every single day and, and especially to be with a contender. And, you know, all I have in sight with any team is winning a championship. And, you know, that's hopefully I'm here to help do that. And, and uh, yeah, I'm ready. Tim Tucker of the HAC wrote a great article about Martin's trek to the big leagues. I'll invite you to check that out. I've linked it on Twitter. I'll probably send that out again. But either way, the story has so many fascinating chapters. And one of those was a two-year stint in Japan where he became one of the better relievers for the Nippon Ham Fighters. He made 92 appearances over a two-year span, posted a 1.12 ERA, and the native of Arlington, Texas, came back and signed a two-year deal with the Rangers. As far as what he learned in Japan, Martin discussed the impact that had on his career. Just going over there and and getting in certain situations and getting the experience of the atmosphere over there and and learning to slow the game down, uh, it's helped me a lot coming over here. Being able to just slow the mind down when everything's get a little hairy on the mound, that's probably the biggest thing. That trip to Japan certainly influential for Chris Martin, who again made his Braves debut on Friday with a scoreless inning against Cincinnati. Now Atlanta will look to get its other couple of relievers into high-leverage spots. We'll start with Mark Melanson, the 34-year-old, who comes over in a trade with the San Francisco Giants. He had signed a big-time four-year, $62 million contract as a former All-Star closer. This is a guy that saved 51 games in 2015, He saved 47 games in 2016, and then he signed with the Giants in 2017. 
and had to deal with some arm injuries and just has not been quite as effective as San Francisco was hoping, and he never regained his closer's job after 2017. He has just four saves over the last couple of years, but hearing from Melanson after he came over from San Francisco, it really sounded like the arm surgery he had in 2017 had kind of a carryover effect to 2018 where he just wasn't quite comfortable and wasn't back to normal. The last few weeks, he feels like he's really turned a corner in San Francisco where he posted a 3.50 ERA in 43 outings this year. He has just the one save, but his strikeouts are up, and he feels like he's made some mechanical adjustments that could help him get back to that level of elite reliever, and the Braves are certainly hoping he can do that over the final couple of months and into October as well. That big contract he signed with the Giants included a no-trade clause, which he had to waive in order to accept a trade to the Braves. Melanson shared what that process was like. Well, I had a little bit of a premature notice. So I had about two hours. Uh, you know, they had to contact me and ask me if it was okay. So I said, okay. give me a few seconds to call my wife and make sure that uh, she okays it. That, that's really the one who's going to okay this. So she's a trooper, and she was more than happy to. So we're very excited. So the Melanson family excited to be coming to Atlanta. And, of course, for Mark Melanson, jumping into a pennant race is something he doesn't mind at all. But this is kind of a nerve-wracking time for players. Even if you have a no-trade clause and you have some security like Mark Melanson had, you still have that possibility that a deal could come up, and it's something you'll have to consider if the club's looking to make a move, and perhaps that move is beneficial. Having been a part of trades previously in his career, Melanson shared what this particular trade deadline was like. You know, there had been no talks up to that point, and two hours before the deadline, they gave me a call. So it was kind of shocking, I guess, but... Um... The emotions, you know, anytime you go through a trade, it's kind of just disarray. So, But initially, you know, if you would ask me the day before which teams would I say yes to, this would have been top of the list. And I'm not just saying that. I, I love the energy that this club brings, watching them on ESPN, watch, you know, everything. It's just uh, it's fun to see everybody on the same page. Joining the first-place Braves is something that makes Melanson pretty happy, and he provided a scouting report of what it's like to play against this team and why he's so happy to be a part of it now. First place, first of all, but the youth, the energy, playing these guys on the other side, you can feel that energy. So, I mean, you got a brand-new ballpark. I mean, there's so many things. The team's going to be good for years to come. I'm really excited about it. Melanson has a respectable 350 ERA on the year, but since the All-Star break, eight appearances for the Giants, nine and two-thirds innings. He's allowed just four hits, one walk, only run came on a solo home run, and he's picked up 10 strikeouts. So the ERA, 0.93 over the last couple of weeks, and that's thanks in part to some adjustments that he's made that has him feeling good about where the rest of the season could go. Right now, I feel really good. I've done a few things to switch up. You know, I moved on the other side of the rubber, and I got a different grip for the cutter. So things have really been working well. In acquiring Mark Melanson, the Braves traded Tristan Beck, who's kind of a mid- to lower-level pitching prospect, somebody they like, but someone who probably profiles as a reliever. The Giants took him and reliever Dan Winkler, who was promptly cut to open up a 40-man spot. So not a lot was given in terms of the prospect and or player return in that trade. But the Braves do assume the salary of Melanson, which is about $4 million for the remainder of 2019 and in $14 million for the 2020 season. If he pitches like he's capable of, the Braves will be happy to have him in their bullpen and they're also happy to not lose another top prospect. Instead, being able to pay a little bit more to get a pitcher that they need and also hold on to pieces of their future to get this deal done. Atlanta did make one more significant trade, so I saved the best for last since this is the guy who's going to be getting the ninth inning duties for the Braves going forward, and that would be all-star Shane Green, who was picked up from the Tigers. The Braves traded left-hander Joey Wentz 
and infielder-slash-outfielder Travis Demerit, who has already been promoted to the big leagues by the Tigers. A couple of intriguing prospects, but guys who I think are an acceptable price tag when you think about the pitching depth when it comes to Wentz. And also, for Travis Demerit, he's a guy that the Braves left open to the Rule 5 draft not long ago, but had a breakout season offensively in AAA Gwinnett and now gets an opportunity to play in the big leagues. So the Tigers got a couple of young players. The Braves get an all-star closer in Shane Green, who's under control this year and next year. So they're going to be able to hold on to him for a while. You're able to get a guy who's having a great year, though his numbers are a little bit interesting. The ERA is an eye-popping 1.18. That's a big reason why he's an all-star. He's not giving up very many hits, just 21 of those across his 38 innings. So opponents unable to put the bat on the ball on a regular basis against him. Fielding independent pitching, though, 3.69, which would suggest perhaps he's outperforming that, getting a little bit lucky. But either way, however he's doing it, the job is getting done. With Detroit, the 1.18 ERA, 22 saves, 38 innings, just 12 walks against 43 strikeouts, only 21 hits, five of those home runs. So the runs that have been scored against him have come via the long ball, but he's not giving up those at an alarming rate. So the Braves now have stability at the back end of their bullpen, another guy who can come in and throw strikes and get outs. And the Braves are happy to have this trio of relievers to really strengthen the one area of the team that needed the most help prior to the deadline. In case you're wondering exactly what kind of competitor the Braves got in Shane Green, I'll let him tell you what his mindset is when he takes them out. A competitor, a guy that's going to compete every time out. You know, the way I've always described it is if you're in a boxing ring throwing haymakers, it's the same thing. I'll be out there throwing my haymakers. They'll be throwing theirs. One of us will get knocked out. Hopefully I'm the last man standing. Gave you all the numbers that Shane Green has put up for the Tigers this year, and the majority of them are pretty good. He discussed what exactly has led to his success in 2019. I think it's just all mental, truthfully. Um, my stuff is the same. I'm just making pitches. I'm not thinking too far ahead or, or too far behind. Uh, just living pitch by pitch. Green is well aware he's just one of the three relievers coming in and is excited to be part of a group that can make a big impact on this club going forward. Yeah, I mean, this organization obviously uh, has some issues that they wanted to fix, and we're here for that reason. And uh, we're all looking forward to you know getting out there and getting the job done. There's no two ways about it. The Braves really needed to add some relief help this year. They've had some guys who have been able to really step forward and fill a gap for them at a time in which they were trying to find some answers. The Braves' bullpen has pitched well at times, not so well at other times, probably a middle-of-the-pack group, but when you're thinking about a club that wants to make a deep run in October, a middle-of-the-pack bullpen may not be enough. So the Braves got some added firepower here with the all-star Shane Green, the former all-star Mark Melanson, and the very effective control pitcher in Chris Martin. As for what Green and company are expecting going forward, he said he'd like to help this club take it to the next level. I think we can win it all. I mean, that's why we're here. You know, I'd imagine the guys in this locker room are riding this wave and enjoying it, and I'm looking forward to riding it with them. The Braves were busy playing a baseball game as the trade deadline was coming down on Wednesday afternoon. And as I mentioned, they went 4-2 and two on a very important road trip, taking two out of three from the Phillies, then marching into Washington and doing the same thing to the Nationals to close out that road trip before coming home for a four-game set against the Reds where they have some brand-new teammates in Melanson, Green, and Martin. First baseman Freddie Freeman discussed that successful road trip and just what it means to get reinforcements for the stretch drive. Oh, it's great. You know, that was a good road trip for us. After we didn't play very good for a week or two right there, to come on a road trip against two division opponents and go 4-2, and two, that's big. This team is really, really good. I think everyone knows this team has a real good chance to win this thing. So um, when you play good and you get rewarded by your front office, it just fires everyone else up in this clubhouse. The Braves were just one of many teams looking to add prior to the trade deadline on Wednesday. So let's take a look and review what exactly was going on in a very busy trade deadline. The only one we get in 2019 is waiver trades 
No longer a thing. If you want to add them to your postseason roster, you had to have your business done by July 31st. I want to welcome in my friend Matt Snyder, who writes for CBS Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at MattSnyderCBS. Matt, I appreciate the time as always. I know it was a busy week for you, and I'm looking forward to slicing and dicing what was, I think, an intriguing trade deadline and maybe one that is a little bit different than some we've seen in years past. What was interesting was when we hit 4 o'clock, which was the deadline, everybody was like, man, that sucked, that was boring. And then we had like an onslaught of moves that we found out happened at the last minute, and then all of a sudden, cranky. It was amazing. It was unexpected for sure, and I think that yeah. that's one, and I'll get to Grinky in a little while, but I think that just the unexpected nature of the trade deadline, especially for fans, it adds a lot of intrigue to the sport, and I just to get off on a wild tangent to start with, but maybe not too wild, but we always talk about generating interest in the sport and, and generating all of the fun and excitement around baseball, which hasn't necessarily been the most spontaneous of all the sports, but I think times like the trade deadline and even to some extent the hot stove, of course, as well, that's really half the fun of the game if you really think about it because you kind of get to play you know, fantasy booking, if you will, to kind of give your team a makeover in some ways. Yeah, I agree. And, and think about stuff like Verlander to the Astros at like, what was it, 11.59 right. p.m. Eastern on August 31st in 2017. Uh, stuff like that is amazing. Taking away the waiver trade period, I feel like it should have made for more moves. Right. But so many teams could have fooled themselves into saying they're contenders this year. I mean, look, the Mets bought. The Giants didn't offsell Madison Bumgarner and Will Smith. I mean, there were upsets that happened that I think prevented this from being a full-scale trade deadline. But if we still had the waiver trade period, I feel like the Diamondbacks would not have sold Zach Cranky. They would have waited, slipped into waivers, tried to see if they could get more. They might have even waited to the offseason. But now without that, I think there was more urgency for them to deal him and uh, more urgency for the Astros to go out and get him instead of waiting and seeing if, hey, man, we can do the same thing we did with Verlander. No doubt about it. And they were able to pull that off as well. And they stacked Zach Grinke into a rotation that already included a couple of pretty good starting pitchers. So we'll get to them in just a moment. But I want to start closer to home here as far as Atlanta is concerned. The Braves have the second-best record in the National League. They're leading a division that I think, Matt, a lot of people didn't even really give them a chance to repeat in with the National League East. And the one Achilles heel of this team has been the bullpen. But Alex Anthopoulos got a trifecta of late-inning relievers. He got Chris Martin from the Rangers, Mark Melanson he got from the Giants, and then Shane Green, an all-star closer from the Tigers. How do you think the Braves did on their deadline deals? Uh Heading into the deadline, if you would have said those are the guys that they were going to add, I would have said, oh, that's kind of underwhelming. Because Green, this is like an outlier uh, season for him. But I said heading into the deadline because there weren't that many big names that moved. Right. Uh, I think they did an exceptional job given what was out there and what – look at the Red Sox needed bullpen help. They didn't do anything. The Dodgers needed bullpen help. They didn't do much. The Twins needed bullpen help. They didn't do much. The Braves were the most aggressive in going out and actually getting guys instead of just talking about it. So I think he did an exceptional job, given who was moved and who was not moved. I think we thought there were going to be more names out there, and there, there really weren't. So he did a good job. And when you look at the totality of trades in general, I know we talked about this a little bit, about it kind of being a little bit underwhelming. Then you get the big deadline blockbuster deal of Grinky and a couple of other moves that went with it. But I think you're right. I mean, this trade deadline may have been as much about who was rumored and didn't move as much as it was who was actually traded. But when you look at the yeah, Braves' deals as well – 
I think one of the better parts about it was they did not mortgage the future by going out and aggressively trading off some of their top prospects, which for a club like Atlanta, which will never be in the Dodgers and Red Sox and Yankees spending arena, I think it's pretty important that they were able to add uh, three arms that could help them not only in 2019, but in the case of a couple of them, even into 2020 without sacrificing a big piece of their future. Absolutely. And I think like Martin and Green, it could be a really underrated combo. Melanson, he's past his prime, but you never know. He could have two months where he pitches like he was the guy that was on the Pirates. It's it's not out of the realm of possibility. So come playoff time, there's a real possibility that they could have like three lockdown relievers at the back end of the bullpen. So it's it was a really good job, like you said, of balancing not completely mortgaging the future for a short-term investment, but also shoring up a need in a market where it was a seller's market and there weren't as many big arms out there as everybody thought there were going to be. Well, the Braves added those pieces. The Nationals also added a couple of relievers. The Philadelphia Phillies didn't do a whole lot. They were, of course, spending that quote-unquote stupid money over the winter to really make (laughs) their team over. But have you been surprised and or disappointed by the seasons that Philadelphia and Washington have had? I mean, I know the Nationals have been hot over the last couple of months, but I don't think anybody would have expected this to be the standings, you know, going down the stretch. Going into the season, I thought it was going to be like a a four-team race for a while. So the Mets, that's bad. Uh Philly's really good start and disappointing since then, yeah. And the rotation has just kind of really completely fallen apart behind Aaron Nola, who, yeah. by the way, has not been what we thought he was going to be this year either. Nationals, I, they've been what we thought they were going to be after that 19-31 and 31 start. Uh, it's hard to completely turn everything around when you're 12 games over under 500 through two months. They've been great since then. They just got off to a terrible start due to the bullpen falling apart. Yeah, it, it's surprising to an extent. I mean, I thought the Braves were going to be good, but I thought it was going to be a four-team race. So I will say the Braves have been probably better than a lot of us thought they were going to be too. I mean, they're, what, 19 games over 500? Mm-hmm. They're excellent. Yeah, they've been doing their thing, no doubt about it. And I think the young core and some of the right veterans and just opening up that window of building off of a really surprising 2018 season has given this club I think a lot of confidence as well. So the Phillies and the Nationals have been chasing the Braves for much of the season, and that remains the case as we head into August. And just talking about the trade deadline and the effect that it has, and we had all these storylines, some of the names that we've already discussed about who might be available, who may be out there. The New York Mets, you mentioned, they've been disappointing might be the the easiest way to put it. They were at the center of all of that in terms of the rumors leading into the trade deadline. They didn't end up trading one of their starters. Instead, they traded for a starter as Noah Syndergaard and Zach Wheeler stayed. Marcus Stroman came aboard from the Blue Jays. What is your read on that whole situation and what exactly the Mets are trying to accomplish both in 2019 and, and perhaps 2020 <laughs> or beyond? I, I don't know. There was a brief moment there where I knew better than to totally go this route, but I was like, I can't believe this, but are they geniuses because they bought Marcus <laughs> Stroman and now they control the entire starting pitching market right. because – the Giants aren't going to trade Madison Bumgarner. The Rangers aren't going to trade Mike Miner. It looks like the only starters available are all Mets. So they totally controlled the market. But then they didn't deal any of them. So I was like, I, I should have known better than to think it for a brief leading second. But I, <laughs> the issue with the Mets is the owners are delusional. They think that they're buying because they think they're going to go on a run like 2015 because they got hot. Right. But they got hot against the Pirates and the White Sox. 
you can't be dumb enough to buy into that and think I'm going to leapfrog over all these teams. I'm five games out of the second wild card right now. And all of a sudden we're going to make a run to the world series like we did in 2015. That's not going to happen, but that's what they think is going to happen. And that's why they bought. And that's why they didn't sell Wheeler. I understand keeping Noah Syndergaard and actually thought it was stupid that they were thinking about trading Syndergaard because even if you're going to try to rebuild, he's one of the guys, he's only 26 years old. He's one of the guys that you build around like Pete Alonso and Jeff McNeil and Ahmed Rosario and Dom Smith. Syndergaard is one of the guys you keep and build around, but not selling Wheeler when he's two months away from free agency, when the Cardinals could have given them something of substance. It is idiotic, beyond idiotic to me. It's just, I don't have the words to describe how stupid I think this front office is. And we've all spilt a lot of words just trying to understand whether or not it was just inexperienced or an over-aggressive brand-new general manager who had to figure things out because, I mean, you flash back to you know the winter. I mean, they went out and made a deal, which was essentially taking on a declining Robinson Cano to solve their bullpen problem. They also spent some money, but Edwin Diaz was supposed to be the center of that. And a lot of people were talking about, well, Diaz could be on the block. But I think that that, more than anything, would have been a gigantic white flag to buy the best closer available at a high price and then sell him at a low price. I feel like the Mets kind of painted themselves in a corner in some ways because, like you mentioned, the ownership is delusional. But also you've got a general manager in a front office that may have some delusions themselves or, or some aspirations anyway to make a big splash. But that simply has not worked out this year. Well, and it was a half measure, too. Like, if you're going to do that, then go out and sign Manny Machado or sign Bryce Harper or sign Keiko A. Kimbrell. Sure. Like, if you're going to go all out and say, hey, we're going to win now, then go all out and try to win now. Don't just do that trade and then stop and sit on your hands the rest of the offseason. Moving along from the Mets, who could probably have their own podcast about what goes wrong there on a weekly basis. And, in <laughs> fact, I'm sure somebody yeah. does have one of those. Uh, a couple of starting pitchers who did not move, Madison Bumgarner, uh, were you a little bit surprised on him that the Giants, I know they surged right before the deadline, but do you feel like they made the right call there in terms of not just this year, but you think maybe they want him to stick around and possibly resign and continue his career there? Surely they're going to look into it. In terms of the right call, I'm so on the fence. And I, relatively speaking, relatively speaking, because he has makes a ton of money, I feel bad for far anxiety because – this is your first year on the job. This is a team that's won three World Series this decade. This is an obvious team that should have been a seller. Yeah. Their true talent level, they're not a playoff team. They're going to fall out of the race this month. But it's his first year there. To sell the fan base on, we're two games out of a wild card when we've won the World Series from the wild card just a few years ago. That's a tough sell, and that's going to make you a bad guy. He, he just was in such a tough spot. It's easy for me to sit here and say, yes, they should have sold anyway. And I think they should have. But when you're the person that has that job with a fan base that probably doesn't want you to sell. And and Madison Bumgarner is a franchise legend. Yes, he is. With the Giants. He he couldn't do it. Their string of wins completely screwed him over. And I'd have to say, if I was sitting in his shoes, then I would be lamenting the fact that I couldn't sell him. But I would also know I couldn't sell him. Yeah, it's a very interesting balancing act that Zaidi has out there as well because not only is it Bumgarner, a franchise legend, on the field, but you've got Bruce Bochy in his swan song season with the Giants. Do you think that that might have been kind of an emotional factor, maybe beyond Zaidi, maybe all the way up into ownership in terms of 
let's just give Bruce one last shot with whatever we can do. Because they did a little bit of selling with some of their bullpen pieces that they could move. Like Melanson yeah, and it was guys they could afford to deal without looking like they were right. selling. I don't think that he's an emotional type guy in terms of making moves. But I think he probably knew that almost everybody else was emotional about the moves. So he was in a no-win situation and he had to just suck it up and take it. And uh, he'll probably try to pick up the pieces in the offseason. But uh, if I had to guess, like I said, he's sitting there watching the wins and going, are you kidding me? Now I can't sell Bumgarner and Will Smith. <laughs> yeah, it ended up being a, a little bit of a strange situation for him. Going back to the Mets just momentarily, just in terms of you mentioned one aspect of what they might have done to the starting pitching market. They didn't trade Marcus Stroman. They didn't give up a whole lot to get him, to be honest with you. Do you feel like in some ways outside of Bumgarner, of course, that that might have short-circuited some of the starting pitching pursuits for other clubs? Yes. Just, just that, that price tag that Stroman might have set or that bar, if you will? Yeah, it was low. Uh, almost everybody I talked to thought the, the Stroman deal was light. So, yeah, the domino effect there. What the Mets gave up to get Stroman was light. Then the Mets hold all the cards. Then Mike Miner's not going to go. The Madison Bumgarner's not going to go. It affects almost everything. And, and Zach Granke's situation is way different than almost any other starting pitcher available. So yeah. we can't even count that. But, yeah, I think the Stroman deal really did, as you said, short-circuit the entire starting pitching market based on that the return was light in most people in the industry's opinion and that the Mets then held all the cards and decided not to sell any of them. Yeah, time's going to tell exactly what that means for the Mets, both in 2019, which for what's left of it, which, again, I don't think see the Mets making their miracle run to the World Series, but then over the no. winter and then 2020 as well, because they are going to once again have, and we say this every year, you look at the Mets rotation and you feel like this is a contender. And then pretty much anything that can go wrong seems to go wrong for them over the course of the six <laughs> months that follows. And they end up in the kind of position that they're in now, at least lately, uh, 2015 notwithstanding. Meanwhile, you mentioned the big blockbuster trade. It belonged to the Houston Astros and the Arizona Diamondbacks. Astros were willing to package up some prospects, some really high-ceiling players, send them over to Arizona for Zach Grinke. The Houston rotation was already loaded before this with Verlander and with Garrett Cole and I don't know of too many people that believe that this Grinky deal was going to get done thanks in large part to the money he was owed, but, I mean, the Astros made it happen again. Yeah, it's it makes a lot of sense, too, if you look at it. The, the Astros' window to win is now. They don't need to hug prospects. They're so loaded. Uh, yeah. Like, Tony Kemp, by no means is he a star or anything, but he's a really useful bench player, and they designated him for assignment. Yeah. Tyler White's a really useful bench player. They sent him to the Dodgers. They have so much organizational depth. But in the rotation, after this year, you have Justin Verlander and a bunch of question marks because Garrett Cole's a free agent. I, a lot of the young guys, you don't know what you're going to get from them. Lance McCullers is coming back from Tommy John surgery. Again, you don't know what you're going to get there. So there was some uncertainty past Verlander after this year. Taking on the Granky money made a lot of sense. I don't know if that means they're not going to try to re-sign Garrett Cole, but for the rest of this year, if you're Jeff Lunau, you don't worry about that. Now you have a big three playoff rotation. The Dodgers can probably hang with them, but almost nobody else can yeah. line up a playoff rotation. Well, maybe the Nationals if they get there, but almost nobody else can compete with that big three in the playoffs. Yeah, it's going to be pretty crazy. I, I kind of had mused about it over the winter, you know, what club's going to be willing to pick up a Zach Grinky contract because you know Arizona doesn't want to pay 50% of it just to trade him away, especially when he's still a very useful pitcher. But – you thought, how much are they going to have to pay down to get some top prospects? But I think that this was maybe the ideal time for Arizona to go ahead and 
you know, cut its losses on that contract and move it along. And I think the Diamondbacks did extremely well in their return as well. They did. I, I believe, you know, like you said, it, it was the right time. They traded Paul Goldschmidt in the offseason. They let A.J. Pollock walk. Mm-hmm. Granky's 35 with a lot of money due in, in his late 30s. Like, this is not – by no means is it a bad contract because he's worth the money. He's that good. And actually, I think he's gotten kind of underrated, actually. But – you're not going to be winning within these next two or three years. So go out and get something big for them. And they did. They got four high upside guys. It was a really nice move. They struck while the iron was hot. Now, we always need a three-team trade to really add some intrigue to any trade deadline. We got one of those between the Cleveland Indians, the Cincinnati Reds, and the San Diego Padres, who more or less consolidated some things to get a high upside prospect. Of course, the big moves for this was Cleveland adding some outfield power in Puig, Yasiel Puig and uh, Fran Mel Reyes uh, from the Reds and the Padres, respectively. And then the central name in all of this was Trevor Bauer. We wondered if the Indians were going to sell at any point this year, even though they're fighting to win the American League Central if they can. Trading Bauer is a somewhat quizzical move, but it seems like in some ways maybe that guy had finally worn out his welcome in Cleveland as well, and they were just ready to move on and get something for him and try to win with what they have because the Indians obviously have the starting pitching. What did you make of that three-team trade? And I know it's early to call a winner and a loser on it, but do you think all of the teams involved did well enough for themselves to make this a worthwhile deal? I think it's possible. Uh, on the Indian side, I loved it. I, I think that they were kind of tired of him. He's Frankly, he's a clown. And I, I think that you could see Francona when he walked oh, yeah. up to Bauer on the mound. Like They've just had enough of his act. And I know he apologized and that seemed like a sincere apology but gosh at, at some point enough's enough and to get back Fran Mill Reyes who is going to be a very good power hitting DH for a while and Logan Allen who's probably profiles as like a four or five starter but the Indians are so good at developing starting pitching as we continue to see with Plesak and Bieber I like that move for them there then the Plesak is going to add some power to their lineup too uh, and with Jose Ramirez starting to hit like the Jose Ramirez of old, it looks like their offense, it was embarrassing early in the year. Now it looks like it's actually pretty good. I think they're going to end up winning the Central now. Um, Corey Kluber's only a few weeks away from being back, so you can slide him right back into uh, Trevor Bauer's spot in the rotation. So I think they're going to be fine from that. On the Reds end, they're looking to contend next year. Bauer's signed through next year. So you look at like Bauer, Sonny Gray, and Luis Castillo as a top three in the rotation, not necessarily in that order. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah. On the Padres end, they think Trammell is, is going to be a star, obviously. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be dealing uh, Reyes and Allen. So as long as Trammell comes along and progresses and is, hits his upside, he's having a bad year this year. But a lot of people had him as a top 30 prospect before this year. If he hits his upside – and Reyes is probably more of a DH than a corner outfield type, and they have a lot of corner outfield types in San Diego, then this move made sense for all three teams. No, it most certainly did. I joke with a friend of mine I'm in a fantasy league with. He has Fran Mill Reyes, and I have Hunter Renfro, and we kind of joke that they're a little bit interchangeable when you just start to look at the stat lines of the two. Of course, I yep. think uh, Renfro is a little bit more of a fielder, and as you mentioned, I think Reyes could really flourish as a DH over in the American League. So we've hit a lot of the deals and and moves that have been made, a couple that haven't been made. But in terms of teams that didn't deal and that didn't make a trade, that really surprises me, the Yankees, one of several contenders with needs that just weren't able to get it done. A reason to me seems like they're unwilling to do exactly what the Astros did, which was trade away top prospects and take on a bunch of money. 
Do you think front offices, including Brian Cashman's, are evolving to the point where we may not see some of these big trades because GMs and teams are afraid to miss and to end up overpaying? Yes, and it's to a fault. And I'll give one example. I, I'm sure you know I'm a Cubs fan. Uh, a Rollis Chapman deal, Glaber Torres goes to the Yankees. A lot of people would see that as a loss, but the Cubs won the World Series, yep. and that's what it's all about. I'm a bit over all this prospect hugging and getting scared of losing out on the deal long-term because flags fly forever, man. Yeah, they do. Go get a ring. Uh, I, I don't really have much more to say about it. I'm just I'm frustrated by it. Uh, if you're the Yankees right now, you're good enough to win the World Series, except you need better starting pitching. So you go do what you need to do to get starting pitching and win the World Series. Who cares about the fallout? I, I'm frustrated that we seem to have mostly moved away from that in baseball. Yeah, some of those emotional trades, if you want to call them that, you know, where a team does decide, hey, we're just going to go for it, that spontaneity may be the better word for it. That does seem to be going away because you mentioned the Glaber Torres for Aroldis Chapman deal. Nobody really knew at that time what Glaber Torres was going to be, but the fact was the Cubs had the ability to trade an infielder like that because of how good their infield was at that time, and I think a lot Correct. of clubs stop looking at the big league level and just start thinking about, well, this is a number one, this is a number two prospect or top ten prospect, however you want to do it. But the fascination with that, while it is a lot of fun to think about the future, and of course you want your team thinking and building for the future, it really does seem to, like you said, just have come at a fault when it comes to winning at the big league level because ultimately when you're running an organization, don't you want the top team to be the best team? And let's throw the Dodgers in there, too. Sure. The Dodgers go to the playoffs every single year. They've gone to the World Series the last two years. They badly need bullpen help right now. And what did they do? They went out and held on to their prospects for dear life and didn't trade anybody. And now that might not be fair because maybe the asking prices on Vasquez and Edwin Diaz were way too high and they didn't think those guys would make them that much better. But you know what? If you blow a few World Series games to the Astros mm -hmm. and lose again, you're going to be regretting it. You've got to go out and do what it takes to win the World Series, which I shouldn't even have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, we talk about it a lot in Atlanta just based on where the Braves have been coming through a rebuild and having one of the top farm systems in all of baseball. And I was asked recently, you know, what prospects are untouchable? And my answer really to it is, unless you've got the number one prospect in baseball, which they did with Acuna a couple of years ago, everybody else is available. I'm, I'm not going to say anybody's untouchable. You're just looking for the right deals. I mean, I, I yeah. understand not throwing them away for two-month rentals, but, man, the Dodgers, the Yankees, Red Sox, to a certain extent, they didn't do much buying either. I know they're kind of in a precarious position this year, but it's surprising to see your big-money flag-bearer franchises for the sport more or less. I'm not going to say they sat on their hands, but they certainly didn't get the deals done. Yeah, and, and one name that to think about on the Dodgers is Gavin Lux mm -hmm. and everybody's in love with him right now. And he's destroying the ball in triple a he's a shortstop and everybody kept saying, well, Gavin Lux is untouchable. The, the pirates want Lux, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like pulling my hair. Out, like they have Corey Seager. <laughs> they don't need a franchise shortstop. They have one. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm beyond frustrated with it, but Hey, you know what you do? You Dodgers, they're, they're, one of the top organizations in baseball. They have an incredible big league team. I just, I feel like you got to do what you got to do to win it all. And they're just, they just don't. You wouldn't think that they would need to be reminded because the last time that they won a world series was Kurt Gibson hitting a big home run to set the tone for that one. So it's been a while, even with the Dodgers being yeah. kind of at the top of the food chain, they are still trying to get over that hump 
some three decades ago. So. Why I think you should just do whatever it takes, but hey. I'm just sitting in my mom's basement, right? Right. That's that's where we all are. You're in your mom's basement. I'm over here in my mom's basement. But it's good to talk to you, Matt. Enjoyed this. We covered a lot of things. Of course, the trade deadline was fascinating for both what happened and maybe what didn't happen. But, uh, Matt, if you've got anything you'd like to plug, feel free to go ahead and uh, let people know where to find you and uh, maybe what you're working on here in the uh, the next coming weeks and months, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, CBS Sports slash MLB. CBSSports.com slash MLB. I'm Matt Snyder, CBS on Twitter. Um, eh. Nothing huge. Well, you know what? I I do have one thing I, I'm working on that I think is going to be cool, but it'll be in the off season. But I talked to Marcus Stroman and I've talked to a bunch of other pitchers and former pitchers about why so many pitchers don't take pop ups that are like right on the mound right. and get out of the way so infielders can have them because Stroman takes them, and uh, I think that's going to be a really fun piece. But that'll be sometime in the off season. Well, that is pretty fascinating. I'll look forward to checking that out. And of course, when we get into the winter. We can talk about some hot stove as well. Matt, appreciate all your time and look forward to chatting with you again soon. All right. Have a good one. He's Matt Snyder of CBS Sports. Appreciate all his time and his insight. And with that, let's look ahead at what's coming up for the Atlanta Braves as we wrap up this episode of From the Diamond. The trade deadline is now in our rearview mirror. We are in the month of August, so just two months remain in the regular season. The Braves came home for a four-game series against the Reds, splitting the first couple of games. Now they've got two more of those, and then it will be a seven-game road trip Three in Minnesota against the Twins, then four down in Miami as they'll face the Marlins before an off day on Monday the 12th. Should be fascinating to see the Braves and Twins matching up because both these offenses, well, they know how to hit some home runs. The Twins perhaps more than anybody in 2019. They've been a huge surprise team, and that'll be a big challenge for the Atlanta pitching staff. And, of course, the Braves have handled business against the Marlins. They'll need to continue doing that as we head down the stretch. After that, as we look at the middle of the month, there's a nice big homestand for the Braves. Three against the Mets, three against the Dodgers, three more against the Marlins. So Mets, Marlins, you want to handle business in your division. But if you're looking for what could be a bit of a playoff preview, Braves hosting the Dodgers, hoping for some better results at SunTrust Park as they see L.A. for the second time this season and hopefully another time still to come if both those teams are indeed destined to clash in the National League Championship Series. That'll wrap things up on this episode of From the Diamond, though. Appreciate you tuning in and invite you to subscribe if you haven't already iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher is where you can find the show. Make sure to connect on social media, on Twitter. Find the show at FromTheDiamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can also find the show on Instagram at FromTheDiamond, no underscore. And you can find me on Instagram as well. I am at Grant McCauley on Instagram. Thanks again to Matt Snyder of CBS Sports for jumping on to talk about the trade deadline. And thanks again to you for tuning in for some Braves and baseball talk and look forward to doing it again this time next week. Until then, though, this is From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley, and we'll catch you next time. So long, everyone.